Today on the show, we hired two tigers to record this episode. But obviously, tigers can't talk or assassinate children, so our foolproof plan kind of fell apart. We really didn't think that through, did we? <laughs> but now, I mean, if anyone needs like four hours of tiger <laughs> ASMR, we got it. <laughs> Welcome to Gamjabar, your guide to the iconic world of Dune. We will be exploring the themes, philosophies, and characters found in the sandy depths of this vast universe, from Frank Herbert's groundbreaking novels to the adaptations on film and TV. My name is Leo. And my name's Abu. And we are back with episode two of our sci-fi channel, Children of Dune miniseries coverage. That is right. Wow, I can't wait to talk about this episode. There's so much to unpack here. Yep. <laughs> but look, before we get ahead of ourselves, because sure. there's a lot of dangerous things we could say in this opening that would spoil a lot of things. Oh my God, true. So let's just make shout out Mapes proud, get yeah. through this housekeeping so we can talk about this episode. Indeed. And first up, we've got our spoiler warning. If you are listening to this episode, be warned, we are going to be spoiling Dune, Dune Messiah, and Children of Dune. Yes. So, I know last episode was all Dune Messiah. Maybe there were some characters you didn't recognize. Today, we are formally into Children of Dune plot events. So, finish the book. We had a whole book club series. If you're hearing this, you have access to all of it. So, definitely finish Children of Dune and then listen to this series. For sure. And a reminder that a great way to support us here at Gamjabar is to become a patron at patreon.com slash gamjabar. You'll get ad-free episodes, bloopers, and bonus clips. Plus, you'll get early access to book clubs and bonus episodes like this one before the free public feed does. Months in advance, folks. As always, we must give a shout out yes. to our Kwisatz Hatterack level patrons, Case Aiken and Matthew Good. Oh, gentlemen, listen, if we were being pursued mm. by the cutest mascot tigers for a frosted flake brand <laughs> cereal, I would 100% push you ahead into the narrow crevasse and I would turn yeah. uh, a, a, a Chris knife in hand uh -huh, to face uh -huh certain death to protect you and to make sure that you get away absolutely yeah also thank you <laughs> also thank you for <laughs> supporting us we really appreciate it and that goes of course to all of our patrons it does indeed thank you so much <laughs> of course another great way to support us is to check out gomjabarshop.com where we have some custom dune themed merchandise mm-hmm We've got apparel, cups, art, stickers, and so much more. So check it out at gamjabarshop.com. Indeed. And finally, we love to hear from you. So send us an email. Say hi to us. Say, hey there, hello. Gamjabarpodcast at gmail.com is the email address. We love getting your comments, your feedback, yeah. your jokes, your pet pictures, or suggestions for episodes you'd like to hear. 
Plus, we want to know what you think of this miniseries. Are you loving it as much as we are at times? Mm -hmm. Or are you having serious concerns the way we are sometimes? Yeah. Email us your hot takes. We want to hear them and we will respond to them probably at some point. For sure. For sure. All right. So that takes care of housekeeping. The game plan for today's conversation is the same as part one. Yeah. We'll start today by debriefing quickly about the episode and calling out some notable changes in this adaptation versus the book. Then we'll each share two things that we liked about this episode and two things that we disliked. And finally, we'll wrap up our conversation by sharing our favorite scene from Sci-Fi Channel's Children of Dune, Part 2. Hell yeah. So that having been said, let's take a short break. But don't go anywhere, folks, because when we come back, we're diving into this miniseries. We'll see you in a minute. Welcome back, everybody. Yes, let's get into our main discussion today, and let's start by talking about notable differences. Just to be clear, we're not going to be summarizing the plot beat by beat. We're not going to go through every single scene. I do have a document <laughs> that does that. <laughs> it's so long. But this is, of course, an adaptation of a book that we talked about for the last year. So overall, we're just going to be talking about really the changes and some of the things that we like. For sure. And just like the first episode was very faithful to the events of Dune Messiah, yeah. this episode is very faithful to what is effectively around the first half of Children of Dune. Most of the scenes follow the same beats that they do in the book. And most of the characters, most of the events all take place in the sequence that they do in the book. So once again, hats off to Greg Yatanes and John Harrison for doing an impeccable job with adapting what is a very difficult book to adapt. Yeah. Nevertheless, we do want to call out some of the changes that they made. Obviously, when you're adapting something to the screen, you have to make some tweaks here and there. And so there are right. a couple of scenes and events that are different in this adaptation that we want to quickly call out. Indeed. So to start off, we've got some new things, right? Like there's an addition of this ornithopter flying scene right at the beginning with Leto and Ganema. Yeah. And of course, Irulan sitting in the back seat. Of course, Ganema is great at calling shotgun. There are new interactions between Irulan, Jessica, and Ollie and Jessica and Alia and Duncan to flesh out their relationships a bit more. We definitely get more of yeah. those characters together. Mm -hmm. But the changes aren't all additions, right? Right, right, for sure. We definitely lose some scenes in this adaptation. Yeah. First of all, the iconic Marie's and Hassan Tariq chapter, the very short little scene where they are basically committing cold-blooded murder against... <laughs> pilgrims who yeah. they found in the desert that is entirely omitted from this miniseries and instead right. in its place we kind of get this group of cast out talking debating yeah. making some sort of plan shit talking paul yeah and Maurice is one of the folks at the table so no murder of pilgrims <laughs> in the miniseries I like their group fist bump. Yeah. <laughs> Jackarudu. <laughs> <laughs> We're assassins. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. 
if you look up the cut scene, there's also a group kiss that they do. Didn't make the cut <laughs> on, on the cutting room floor, unfortunately. <laughs> it's a five-way, six-way slobbery. It's the best way to seal. It's a gift of moisture. Again, yeah. going back to the old Fremen ways, you give moisture the most direct way. You're going to spit it on the table. There's moisture lost between the mouth and the table. Right. This is direct. Right. As direct as possible. <laughs> Another scene that is cut from the miniseries is the conversation between Jessica and Javid as they wait outside of Alia's audience chamber. Right. This one to me kind of makes sense because most of that chapter, if you recall, is just Jessica thinking things and observing yeah. things in the room and yeah. just a very short conversation between her and Javid. So in my mind, it makes sense to cut a chapter like that. Tough one to adapt. Yeah, it's very internal. Very internal. Now, much to my chagrin, there is one scene that's omitted from the miniseries that I desperately wish had been in it. Yeah. And that is when Leto and Ganima go to that outcropping and spend the whole night talking to other memory Chani and other memory Paul. Yeah. And where Ganima is effectively possessed all night. And like yes. is battling for control uh, with her own mother for her own body back. Yeah. This whole scene, the whole concept of other memory, Paul, other memory, Chani, all of that is completely missing from the adaptation. And this kind of goes back to one of the critiques I had for part one, where I critiqued it for not really leaning into Paul's prescient abilities. Right. I think we kind of get that here in part two as well, where the prescient abilities and the preborn abilities are watered down quite a bit. Totally. And I, I'm just, I'm right there with you. I wish that we had this because yeah. the idea of Paul, like the voice of Paul being torn out of Leto saying, Ugh. release her or like, let go, you know, like, yeah. let her go. Yeah. Like that's such a cinematic moment in the book. Can you imagine James McAvoy, like just, having something this because he he's he does a lot of like great physical acting in this yeah like his laugh when they escape the sandworm is like so like <laughs> held back, and you can see the tension i'm like imagining him and then alec newman's voice roars out of him like release her that would have been so fucking good and we just don't get it at all they really yeah. do seem to have like dropped the whole other voices other memory thing yeah somewhat yeah it's a shame there's perhaps some hints to it you could maybe read in between some lines, but yeah. it is not shown on screen in like a very unequivocal way, unfortunately. Like talked about. Yeah. Yeah, like definitely. They, they definitely hint at it a few times. Yeah. There's another tough omission that I really wish we got. Mm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And that's the Ixian masked preacher on oh Seleucus Secundus. Oh we my didn't God. get fucking Paul pranking Faradin <laughs> and Tychonic. Really tough. I get it, I guess, because it is sort of a weird thing. And I think for the viewers who don't get all the back and forth, how did the preacher get from Arrakis there and back? And there's a lot of yeah. that. And the promise of Duncan Idaho as a delivered thing. I get it. I just wish we got it, you know? Yeah, for sure. It's one of my favorite scenes early on in Children of Dune, just yeah. because yeah. Paul is so <laughs> openly just trolling for Aden. Yeah. And I wish we had gotten some of that interplay. There's actually very little Faradin in this episode. I suspect we'll see more of him in part three, perhaps. But Yeah, bro's just looking at that worm. 
The whole yeah. time. The whole time. <laughs> he said more as a child. He said he more did. as a tiny child last episode. Yeah. Easy paycheck for that guy, I guess. Get your bag, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> now, the final thing we wanted to call out is that there are just a handful of scenes, much like in part one, that are condensed and combined. Right. So the big example that comes up for me is the preacher's introduction. The first time he comes out and gives a big speech and we meet him. Mother! <laughs> Mother! <laughs> happens at the same time that Jessica arrives on Arrakis right. <laughs> and is welcomed back by the family. And yes, the mother thing is actually quite funny. Like he says mother and then almost like catches himself. It's like, uh, I mean, Reverend, I meant I, Reverend uh, Mother by that. I mean, I'm, Don't read into you that. You all heard me. I said Reverend quietly the first time. You all heard me. <laughs> They're like, I didn't right, know. Right, right. I just heard mother. Let's not read into that, everyone. Move on. Also, that's clearly fucking Paul. Yeah. What, is that Muad'Dib? That fucking looks like Muad'Dib. Everyone seeing this? It's exactly Muad'Dib. <laughs> He's got chapped lips, but it's, it's clearly, clearly still deep. We'll talk more about that later. <laughs> so all of that having been said, some additions, some omissions, some changes, some scenes condensed, all of that having been said, I will say much like part one here in part two, I felt that in the grand scheme of things, these changes were minor. And I felt that the things that were added, the small new scenes here and there, fit neatly into the story, were written in the characters' voices, and were quite helpful in many ways to help stitch together the story for a listener who is not as well-versed with the Dune universe, or maybe even hasn't read the book. It helps them follow the story a little better. So again, I think the adaptation does a very good job in bringing to the screen what is a very difficult book to take off the page. So with that, I think we should get into it, Leo. Let's Agreed. dig a little yeah. deeper and share the two things that we each absolutely loved about part two. So the first thing that I loved about this, and there was a lot to choose mm -hmm. from, but I decided that this topic of visual variety in sets and locations is a good summation of this thing that I like. Yeah. Now, throughout the episode... I was struck by some very strong, like visual choices that they made in not only where they were putting their characters, but like how they were moving their conversations from point A to point B. And I was struck by the realization that like in the book, a lot of scenes take place, first of all, in sieges, <laughs> just a lot of scenes are just in siege to Burr or are yeah. in Jakarudu's sieges or are in chambers in Jakarudu or again, in Alias Keep, and that's it. It's like, we get some variety. I don't mean to say that's the whole book, but a lot of the really meaningful conversations happen in these like very specific areas that don't super matter. And this yeah. makes sense as books as a medium, right? Like Frank talks about wanting to write lean stories and how stories have to be moving forward and engaging. And if he's taking a paragraph every chapter to explain where they are and what they're doing, Instead, he can just say, in a chamber in Siege to Burr. And we all go, okay, right. I know what that is because he's done the work in the past. I know, glow globes. You know, we've got cloth on the floor. We've got these things. So I don't begrudge the book for that. But in a visual medium, it would start to become repetitive and boring. It would look like they don't have a budget for sets. <laughs> You're like, oh, yeah. the cave set again. 
okay, like I guess they couldn't secure as much funding for this episode. Right. I'll also say that another thing that occurred to me in retrospect, in the book, with only a few exceptions, a lot of the meaningful conversations happen at a location and that's it. It's like such and such in that one room and that's it. Or, oh, so-and-so is here and that's it. One example of an exception to that is like Faradin and Tykenik walking through the gardens, right? And they're kind of moving as they talk. But yeah, most of the time it's like they're in a room or they're at a location. They're at a specific dune or at a specific area of rock and they're just there for the whole conversation. Right. So in this adaptation, they changed that in both ways. And I think that this is an extremely strong choice and I think this is an excellent change. So in this first category of conversations, like meaningful conversations that happen in the same locations over and over again, there are a few big changes that I really wanted to shout out and appreciate. And although there are a few, I wanted to specifically hone in on Leto and Ganima's individual interviews with Jessica and celebrate the fact that they're in new locations. Yeah. So to be clear, in the book, Jessica's interview with Leto 2 is held, quote, in the low light of glow globes, which illuminated her quarters in Siege to Burr, end quote. So it's her Siege room in Siege to Burr. Yeah. Cool. Compare that to the absolutely beautiful room that she's Gorgeous. staying in. Unbelievable. The sun-dappled curtains yeah. blowing in the Arakeen breeze is such a beautiful backdrop for this tense conversation between her and Leto too. We could have had it in a dusty siege. That's fine. But I think that, especially considering how much we're going to spend time in like Jakarudu, probably in the next episode, I just love the variety. And it's almost enough that I didn't notice that James McAvoy was wearing just the hottest leather pants. <laughs> almost <laughs> enough. I did notice, but it took me until the end of the scene. Yeah. Well, let's then look at Ganima, right? So in Ganima, and this is from the book, they sit, quote, alone, just the two of them, occupying low cushions in a chamber in Siege to Burn. End a quote. chamber. Just a chamber. Just fucking one of them. Any chamber. <laughs> They're there. I don't know. What what room are yeah. they in? Don't fucking ask what they're talking. Don't that's Frank's way of saying <laughs> picture a bunch of rocks, man. It's a it's a rock cave. They're in a siege. They're in a rock cave. What do don't make me describe this me? shit. It's sci-fi. <laughs> Focus on the I don't know, dude. Yeah. It's it's that's a choice. Sure. Instead of doing that in this episode, and unless I'm mistaken, that was the weirding room, wasn't it? Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. It was. That's Margot Fenring's weirding room, this collection of exotic plants, and it's sun-dappled, and it's beautiful. It's beautiful. this like, incredible garden, and I didn't even picture that. When I was reading the book, I pictured like a, a scientific room, but I like I didn't picture like an open space, and it's so beautiful, and the fact that like... We get this soft light, the lush greenery. It's so beautiful and it's so missing from Arrakis that seeing it in that scene, I was like, oh my God, what a relief, which is such exactly the point of the weirding room. <laughs> like that's the goal that Margot Fenring had when she made it. And let's also be honest, reusing the same like Siege set of like rock cave, low cushions, that sort of thing would be so freaking cheap to do yeah. for the, the production. And they decided to make a much bolder choice, which cost a lot more. And I love it. 
I love it for the visual variety. I love it as a viewer to not get like fatigued on the same sets over and over again for so many reasons. For sure. I was very happy to see the weirdy room. There's actually yeah, yeah. a little bit of dialogue about it too, where yeah. Jessica observes, I'm glad this room has been kept. And Irland says something to the effect of, Paul would have wished to keep this room and preserve it. And it's the promise to shout out Mapes. It was and it's the promise the to, the shout, promise out to shout out Mapes. Exactly. I, oh. I loved it. I loved that we had yeah. a couple of conversations that took place in this room. And I liked continuing that through line of Paul's legacy and shout out Mapes' legacy and Margot yeah. Fennering's legacy. Seeing that here, it's such a great visual bit of storytelling that tells us how important this room was to basically everyone who yeah. passed through it and how it's been preserved and seemingly expanded, right? I do imagine, like you were saying, back in Dune when Jessica first found it, I imagined it much smaller mm. and like maybe a couple of plants here and there, maybe some larger ones, all being sprinklered by some sort of like mechanical sprinkler system. That's how I pictured it. But here, by the time we're in Children of Dune, we're decades later, it's a lush fucking garden that they're like walking around in. <laughs> yeah, it makes for a beautiful yeah. set. And I think it's very symbolic as well. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I agree. Frank set up so many things in Dune that do kind of fall off in Dune Messiah yeah. and in Children of Dune. For and sure. it's fine. I don't need the weirding room to make Children of yeah. Dune be a complete story. But there is a certain continuity that's lost. And the fact that John Harrison was like, no, fucking bring the weirding room back. Yeah. <laughs> We're doing right. it. We're in the garden. Again, speaks to his respect for the source material and yeah. to his yeah. understanding and knowledge of it to realize, wait a second, this room is probably still around. Totally. Yeah. Because you're right. It's never mentioned again in <laughs> Messiah, Children, any of the future books, that Margot Fenring weirding room never mentioned again. But here it is as a beautiful piece of visual storytelling. So again, John Harrison, come run, buddy. I almost want to call you Jonathan just to make your name longer. <laughs> <laughs> but yes, so that's that's like category one, in my opinion. It's like they mm -hmm. made choices about individual conversations that like they're going to take place in a different place and it's going to be more visually interesting, if not consistent with the book. For sure. The second category I wanted to shout out was conversations that happen at point A and then kind of continue through to point B, that yeah. they are moving as they're talking. And there's a few times that this happens, but I wanted to highlight specifically when Sissia and Tychonic, and this is right after they get word that they successfully delivered the robes to Irulan and Alia and uh, through Javid right. and all that, right? Right. Now, I want to highlight this scene. It's just shy of the hour mark, and it primarily involves Tychonic and Winsicia taking stock of how their plans are kind of maturing and growing. You know, the robes have just been delivered. Tiger plot's going to go great. And Winsicia tells him, don't tell Ferida. And that's like news to him. But to be clear, the scene starts with Winsicia looking over Ferradin, who's overlooking the worm. Ferradin's like in Wormtown. He's like, I'm vibing. I love this worm. He's pacing. He looks sickly. Still love him. I'm a worm yeah. fan. Fan mm -hmm. of worms. When Sissia starts there, goes back into the room that like has that balcony, and for almost a full minute, this is uninterrupted, like 55 seconds, she and Tychonic walk through the sprawling corridors of the Seleucus Secundus abode, their like place. Mm -hmm. 
and the gall of the director to be like, you know what I'm going to show? I'm going to show you a huge chunk of this like domicile. I'm going to show you a big chunk of this building. And it feels so immersed. Like I feel like I'm there and I don't feel like I'm on a soundstage in the Czech Republic. (laughs) You know, like it's incredible because they like take multiple turns. They go down some stairs, up some stairs. There's extras in the background coming to and fro doing like chores. There are guards. It's all very lavish with like gold and decor. It's like beautiful. Yeah. None of it was needed. (laughs) No. None of that was remote. They could have just been in a room talking. And instead, we get this like walk and talk where they're really, you know, hashing out these things. Makes it much harder for the actors, too, because they have to like hit certain cues and they have to be on time. They can't walk too fast or too slow. I do like feel genuinely like I'm in the halls of this Seleucus Secundus building, which is a great feeling as a viewer. I also think it is weird, and this is true for the other walk and talk where it's like <laughs> Alia with people. I wrote in my notes, why is she shouting? Because these halls are so reverberant and they're like, the secret plot to kill these children with tigers. <laughs> and then at the end of it, she's like, by the way, don't tell Faradin. And I'm like, tell Farad, you were yelling this whole yeah. way. <laughs> like, yeah, in the other room, like the chef, all he hears is, to kill, to kill the children, to children with tigers, with tigers. And he's just like, Jesus, God. Oh, my. I was going to make like grilled cheese sandwiches, but that feels irrespective <laughs> of the children who are going to be murdered by tigers. Farad's like, sorry, right. children, tigers, what? <laughs> yeah. yeah. It's it's a miracle that Faradin doesn't know the plan, frankly. Most <laughs> of the workers in the palace already have overheard the plan for sure. We watched 12 people overhear that plan. <laughs> it's like <laughs> the wildest thing. But anyway, those jokes aside, I do think that it would be like a thousand percent more difficult to film this shot with that kind of movement and those beats to hit and the number of extras and the size of the set and the audio prop. There's so many things. Yeah. They did it and I'm glad they did it. I am too. I think it's this sort of thing that makes a production look more expensive. Then yeah. maybe it even is. Yeah, Again, this true. set looks beautiful to your point. There's stairs, there's multiple levels, there's long hallways, there's long shots where you need uninterrupted set, right? You can't like build half a wall and then <laughs> yeah, <laughs> move the yeah. camera past it. So these must have been pretty large sets that they built and that must yeah. have been expensive. But I think taking a conversation that could just be shot, reverse shot, shot, reverse shot and turning it into a dynamic walk and talk is something that adds so much production value totally to yep. a show, to a movie, to a whatever. And I think it's a, to your point, very difficult thing to pull off, but when it is done well, like it is done in this episode, it makes a scene and a conversation that much more dynamic and that much more better as a viewing experience. So I couldn't agree with you more. I also noted some of these walk and talk shots that didn't have to be walk and talk shots, but they yeah. were, and they looked very, very good. Yeah, exactly. And also think about what that does for the actors. The chance for these actors to spend a full minute in scene, in character, walking, they're seeing the same, I mean, they're seeing like the cameraman, <laughs> like backing up, but also they get to see the guards that they're passing. They get to yeah. actually like look at each other and talk the whole time. Yep. Tykenik, who continues to be just such a boring character. I'll talk about that later. Right. 
but still gets to have his like schmarmy like oh and they'll never see it coming and he gets to have those moments because he's given time on screen because they have this uninterrupted minute of acting which is like it just is so needed in so many movies these days where takes are really short i just watched the banshees of uh, of um Inisherum. that one and I did take note of there was a moment that I expected to be shot, reverse shot, but they just stuck on Colin Farrell. It just stayed on him. And you kind of see the side of the guy's yeah. face as he responds. But it just it makes such a difference. And it, I'm, I'm just so glad. I'm just so glad that John Harrison and even this new director, whose last name I still can't say, make that choice and <laughs> decide on that. And then the final thing I want to say before I hand it off is the same concept in the same sort of praise I gave to that scene. I also want to give to the scene of Leto and Ganema's encounter with the Tony and Tina, the tiger, Frosted Flake mascots. And to be clear, in the book, they see the tigers on the way to the narrow cave and they're running as the light is fading and they're looking right. at them. But yep. Leto is like, I know we're going to get to the cave on time. And they actually would have gotten fully safely into the cave. Ganema wouldn't have gotten her like legs slashed if not for, ironically, weirdly to win Sissia's credit, her ropes caught on the rocks. So yeah. she catches on the rock, gets slashed. That's like the first moment of, oh, fuck, we might be fucked. Right. But most of the scene, most of the drama, most of the, oh, fuck, we might be fucked happens at the cave. They get to the cave and her rope gets caught on the rock. Like that's where the drama happens is at the cave, mostly in the dark. Compare that to what we got, which is them hearing the tigers, which is hilarious. Objectively, the tigers being assassin creatures and being like, Roar! Right. <laughs> in the distance. Incredible. They are then running this like shaking cam chase through these like rock crevasses. And then there's like suddenly a tiger and whoa, we almost got got. And then they have to like yeah. scrabble up the rock. And it's so like frantic and exciting. I don't like this <laughs> as an adaptation of the book's chapter, but I loved it as a viewer. I was mm -hmm. like, oh mm -hmm. my God, this is exciting. This is fun. And I got to say, dude, James McAvoy turning with his Chris knife to like face them. Yeah. Oh, I just leather pants on the floor oh, that, right that now. That worked James for McAvoy. you? Oh, yeah? Yeah. <laughs> it felt a little cheesy to me, but I'm glad it worked for you. Oh, it worked for me. I was like, this is dope. I mean, it, it's, we have questions about that scene. I think both of us just regarding like, is it Ganema's perspective that we're seeing? I don't know. Uh, <laughs> but... In this adaptation, they are way less in control than they were in the book. Yeah. And I don't like that. I, I kind of hate that. But I also do love this as a as a viewer. I just thought it was a lot of fun. Yeah. So to kind of summarize, this adaptation made some choices that made it a lot harder to make this thing. <laughs> like a lot harder to produce, more expensive, bold choices in, in changing some things. But I do think that it was a lot more fun to watch than it would have been if we were just like in the same siege caves or at locations as things were just happening in that location. Yeah. So for that, at least I give this production a two out of two possible laws of tigers. <laughs> Congratulations to the, yeah. the cast and crew for your two out of two score. I agree. So that was my first pick long winded as it was, as it always is. What was your first pick? So for me, the thing that absolutely worked was Irulan. And mm, at this point, yeah. we're kind of sounding like broken records because <laughs> every time we talk about these sci-fi miniseries, we're like, Irulan, yes, they did mm -hmm. Irulan justice. Yeah. 
But I think it's worth repeating here because she is handled so well in this episode in particular. Of course, they did a great job with her in the first miniseries, in the miniseries that covered Dune. We talked at length about that in those episodes back then. Here in this one, they've done it again, folks. I cannot say enough good things about how they fleshed out her character and her role in this story in a way that I frankly believe Frank Herbert dropped the ball on in yeah. Children of Dune. So for me, this starts at the very open of this episode, that ornithopter ride that she's taking with the twins, and they go on a little uh, sightseeing journey to go see the worms. This scene achieves so much right away, right off the bat in this episode. Yeah, totally. We get to see the twins' interactions with Irulan. We get to see how she has truly become this mother figure for both of them, right? It's adorable. They're like teasing her and she's kind of like reprimanding them, but it's in like a loving sort of cutesy way where she doesn't really mean it. She's not really mad about it because she loves right, them and right. they love her. This scene makes it instantly obvious how much the children care about Irulan and how much Irulan cares about them. Totally, yeah. In a way that I think is missing from the books. The relationship between twins and Irulan is spoken about, but never truly shown in the books, I think. Now, this is reinforced because later in the episode, we see Irulan's protectiveness of the twins in that conversation with Jessica in the weirding room. She tells Jessica that the twins are, quote, the source of my happiness, end quote, yeah. oh, which is such a powerful line. Like I was just like, boom, 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 you know, just, <laughs> yeah. Uh. And then she follows that up by saying, I will allow nothing to harm them as long as I can prevent it. That is Irulan very explicitly stating her intentions and stating her love for the twins, for Paul's children. Yeah. Again, I'm repeating myself, but in a way that I think is not present in the book. I will also say like that moment, I read that moment as Jessica saying, we're the same, aren't we? Benny Gesserit trained, yeah. you know, but but we left the sisterhood for men we loved who are now dead. Right. And Irulan's like, cool, sure. I will never let anything hurt them, no matter what. And right. I read that as like Jessica trying to kind of persuade her to be like, let her guard down a bit with her, like manipulate Irulan oh, a bit. yeah. And Irulan being like, fucking back up. All right. right. We might be Benny Gesserit, but I am there stepmother and i love them like right. back up and i lo i loved it i was like hell yeah Irulan, tell her because i'm still i'm expecting this pivot that we're maybe we're going to get in episode three i don't know but right. yes 100 percent agree totally yeah for sure i mean it's really fun to see the characters throughout this episode because a through line of this episode is why is jessica back that's such a big part of the first half of the book itself too why right. is she back? Why is she back? All of these characters have their theories and they're speculating, is she back for reason X or Y or Z or all three? What's going on? It's really fun to see all the characters in their one-on-ones with Jessica try and suss out the truth from this former Benny Jesuit who may have gone back. And I think to your point with Jessica saying, aren't we both Benny Jesuit? We both fell in love with men. We, we... <laughs> She's trying to build this common ground. Yeah, yeah. And what's interesting is Irulan is basically 
planting a stake in the ground and saying, I am with the children. I am not with whatever Benny Gesserit plan you are here for, that <laughs> yeah, you may be yeah. here for. And also, the man I loved, Paul, may be gone, much like your Duke Leto, but his children are still around. So my love is still around too. Right. And it's it's just a beautiful scene. And I think once again, it's just like, holy shit, this is the Irulan we've always deserved. She's like, you know what, Jessica? And your kids are dead. Both of them. <laughs> pushes her she's like alio's kid pushes her again <laughs> dead ass kids dead kid mom no where, kids where were you when alia needed you huh yeah fucking sipping yeah. my sipping my ties on a caledonian beach canonically <laughs> and i'm glad i'm i am glad by the way that alia called her out on that like you abandoned yeah. me oh oh so head. good Love so good movie. So the last thing I'll say about Irulan and how well she's handled in this is later on in the episode, there is that heartbreaking confrontation with Alia, where Alia slash the Baron basically remove Irulan as the oh, twins' God. guardian. Awful. Yeah. And so mean. It's so mean. Jesus. Cruel. <laughs> and you can see the heartbreak on Irulan's face at that and the astonishment. Even the twins are kind of like, that's not what we want. You know, like that's right. effectively the woman who raised us. And then there's a point in the episode where Duncan also questions Irulan's loyalty to House Atreides. And to his credit, he says something that is tough to argue with. He's like, loyalties changed once can change again. Right. I don't believe that you are truly with House Atreides. And from a guy like Duncan Idaho, who has died literally died for the atreides yeah fair buddy you know you get yeah. to say that sure your skepticism is warranted yeah but <laughs> i think the miniseries does such a great job of painting the picture of who irulan is and what role she plays in the twins lives and what yeah. her position here is in the atreides household and in this empire in a way that the book doesn't that i'm over here like Duncan, shut up, man. All right? She loves those goddamn kids. Yeah. And I would never tell Duncan Idaho to shut up unless we're doing a bit of role play. Like, <laughs> yeah. I am siding with Irulan in all of these instances. I'm like, yeah, Jessica, yeah, totally. she'll never let the kids get hurt. Yeah, Duncan, she is loyal. Alia, how <laughs> dare you? You know, in every instance, I'm siding with Irulan, and that is such an achievement for this miniseries because the book in many instances, basically uses Irulan as a punching bag. Yeah, yeah. Frank definitely decided like mid-Messiah to be like, you know what, she kind of sucks. She's yep. the joke. She's a joke the whole time. Yeah. yeah, and the miniseries shows us that Irulan Carino, not a joke, crucial in the lives of Leto and Ganema Atreides and an important member of the Atreides household. And, yeah. and for that, I applaud the miniseries. What an incredible achievement. I'm glad they cut the scene, though, where Duncan said, how many Sardaukar did you kill when you died for House Atreides? And she's like, okay, this is not a fair comparison, <laughs> Swordmaster of Ginaz. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> He's like, I think loyalty is measured in number of Sardaukar kills. She's like, those are my father's men. I don't know what you want from me. <laughs> I was a child. <laughs> And it's funny because like even beyond any kind of like analysis of what words are said and to whom and all that, 
I did come away from this episode just feeling generally as a viewer, I like this person. She deserves yeah. respect. I love her. She's great. And when people are mean to her, I'm like, hey, don't be mean. Like that is no small achievement for a character who is in many ways underdeveloped after she's introduced by Frank yeah, Herbert. For sure. I think a lot of the credit goes to Julie Cox as well, because I'm in oh, love yeah. with Julie Cox. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> she could be in a mean person role and I'd still be like, leave her alone. She's yeah. great. <laughs> yeah. All right. Back to you, Leo. Sure. What is your item number two that you loved about this episode? Okay. Another thing I loved about this episode is the twin mind of mm. Leto and Ganema. The fact that Leto and Ganema are described as acting almost as if they are one person. They are yeah. described in the book often as like being unsettling and being, you know, more mature than blah, 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 all that, but also described as like being as of one experience, like where one is, the other one is, unless like very specific examples, which also then sets up why it's so sad when Leto starts having his own prescient dreams and he starts having these experiences that differentiate their stuff and why it then is so poignant and so sad when Ganema says to a couple of people like it is tough because I think he's hiding things from me and like we get the sense that that has never happened in the book it's nine years that this has never happened nine years of being like adults in small bodies but in this adaptation it's like a couple of decades right like because they're 17 so it's quite a bit of time that they've been sharing absolutely everything. We see in the very first scene how casually close they are. They like hold each other's hands. They're so they are like one body that then yeah. separates for these scenes. Yeah. It's wonderful. But I think that the show does a great job of jumping in, establishing that from the beginning as they're teasing Irulan in that ornithopter ride. They have the same kind of wry sense of humor. I love the Fear is the mind killer on, and she's like, I think she's letting it pass through her. Hey, <laughs> I was like, ah, that's amazing. What a good fucking joke. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Yo, Ganima's got bars. And then shortly after, they're walking with Alia, and literally, they're like finishing each other's sandwiches. I mean, sentences. They are literally <laughs> completing thoughts between them. And it's almost like they wrote a single character's conversation with Alia and then split it between the two characters, yeah. which is great. It's a lot of fun. I also found that the two actors were, in a very subtle way at times, carrying the same emotion on a moment-to-moment -moment basis as they listened and reacted to things that were being presented to them, where they might both be jovial and like laughing and like, ha, 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 he, he, he. And then they might both turn serious at almost the same moment. Yeah. And that was so fun to see. And that was not necessarily a given in adapting this show. So I really appreciated that. This is also even more apparent later on when Leto acknowledges that they have to begin down the golden path, right? He's like, it's time, we've got to go. And she says, I'm afraid. And he says, fear is the mind killer. And she continues the litany and they trade off and they yeah. cite the litany together. And I was like, this is so cool. What a great little moment. I thought it was really beautiful. And to finish up this point, I wanted to reshare this quote from the book. And part of this is because I anticipate with this fade to black cliffhanger, <laughs> is Leto dead? Is he alive? Yeah. I anticipate we're going to see how much it hurts her to be apart from him. Again, I can't tell if we're supposed to be 
seeing this from her perspective and this is post she's convinced herself that he's gone yeah. like yeah. maybe we are seeing her rewritten memories and yeah. it would be cool to open part three which neither of us have watched yet by the right. way how cool would it be if part three opened with her witnessing leto's death and we spend like the first 30 minutes of the episode never seeing leto and assuming yeah. he's dead and yeah. then he's alive you know we see him in the desert or something like tricking the viewer into believing what Ganima yeah. does yeah, yeah, yeah. through hypnosis for herself. It's just in case truth sayers come in to ask the viewers if Leto's alive yeah. 25 minutes into the episode. Yeah, never trust the viewer. <laughs> never trust the viewer. They don't know shit. <laughs> so ignorant. <laughs> Point is, either way, we're going to be seeing them alone and separate. Yes. And I think I wanted to highlight this quote because I thought it was beautiful. And just to reiterate, quote, Leto, staring at his sister, felt a sudden, wrenching sense of loss. It was a deep pain which shot through his breast. He and Ganema must separate now. For all those years, since birth, they had been as one person. But their plan demanded now that they undergo a metamorphosis, going their separate ways into uniqueness where the sharing of daily experiences would never again unite them as they had once been united. End quote. Like, beautiful uh, and a sense of really growing up and loss it's very human it's like a very genuine kind of undercurrent that runs under their narrative and isn't really ever the focal point but i think that this adaptation has very much given us that before image of them laughing and joking and being on the same thought at the same time yeah and so now i'm like man they've really set this up well for part three to show us them being separate and then maybe coming back together for their marriage <laughs> at the end of the book yeah but yeah i don't know i just thought that was beautiful i thought it was very well done the actors did a great job and that's my second pick i agree i think the twins were handled well there yeah. was one point though where i was almost certain they were gonna kiss and i was like what is happening a couple of times like faces were a little too close to faces but that's less a critique and more of just me being like what are we leaning into <laughs> i couldn't tell because again i have a sister but she's six and a half years older so i think like a certain amount of like intimacy just like casual friendly and because they didn't kiss <laughs> they didn't right, cross the right, line in the clear. sand yeah and then at one point it was a hug like a big hug i think he kissed her on the cheek at one point and i was thinking the whole time yeah like wow this is very familiar <laughs> between brother and sister yeah between siblings, but also right i'm american and we as americans are fucking repressed to any form of like physical camaraderie and physical like intimacy is like implicitly romantic yeah. or sexual so i don't right. know i mean i'm curious yeah if you out there in listener land like even i know in the middle east right men walk holding hands with friends like things like that right yeah there are definitely forms of affection outside the u.s that Particularly, I would say U.S. men yeah. are uncomfortable yeah, yeah. with, to you know, <laughs> for various reasons. <laughs> yeah, 100%. That's a good distinction. I will say, I mean, if I was in James McAvoy's shoes, I would also <laughs> try to sneak a little kiss in because the actor that plays Ganema, she's gorgeous. Like, I, right this is a yeah. total side note, but I just have to say all of the women in this adaptation yeah. are beautiful. And I'm so attracted to all of them, like the actor that plays Alia, obviously my love for Julie Cox. And I think I'm just now realizing that I have a type and it's early 2000s women who were in Dune adaptations. 
Just, I mean, James McAvoy is a looker yeah. as well. Let's no, no, not, no, not to mince words. Let's not they, mince words. All but... of them are very bangable. <laughs> yeah, totally, totally. A great looking cast. I'm glad Villeneuve is continuing that tradition by only casting otherworldly levels of hot people in his adaptation as well. Yeah. So that's my second pick is just how well they were honored as characters in that kind of under undercurrent. What about you? What's your kind of second thing that you liked from this show? So for me, this is a fairly quick one, but item number two that I really liked about the adaptation is the decision that they made with the timeline because they did a little timeline fudging. Obviously, James McAvoy is not a nine-year-old. <laughs> sure. Leto and Kanima are nine-year-old children, at least on the outside, quote-unquote children in the books. The miniseries decided that they are much older and in fact, there's a line in this episode where someone says the twins are just six months away from taking the throne. So they are nearly of age to take the throne that is rightfully theirs, specifically Leto. And I kind of loved this decision to fudge with the timeline yeah, yeah. a little bit. Not only does it make casting easier, not only does it make filming easier, working with child actors is very, very difficult, especially in such a central role. No kidding. Yeah, It made that side of the production much easier for sure, I imagine. But I think just as a storytelling device, having that urgency of Leto nearly about to take the throne is great. Mm. Like, it, I think it adds such an amazing layer to the story that's almost kind of missing in the book. Like in the book, I remember reading it, and especially during our deep dive episodes in our book club. Yeah just constantly questioning like why is everyone so stressed they're fucking nine years old <laughs> yeah they are children there's like at minimum what six years six to seven more years before either of them are ready to take the throne right why is alia so threatened why is jessica in such a rush to get back there there are years left before any of us have to stress about this and there are years of planning and plotting left before this matters you know like right that urgency is almost missing from the book. And here in the miniseries, to know, oh, we're months away from Alia having to step down and from Leto taking the throne as emperor of the known universe. Ooh, man, that adds so much tension to these conversations. Mm -hmm. Suddenly we're on a timeline, folks. We yeah. got a deadline and it's looming. Yeah. I mentioned it earlier, but I think it also adds a sense of urgency to why Jessica's back. She needs to come back to test these twins because they're about to rule the goddamn universe. And if they're abominations, we can't have an abomination sitting on the golden lion throne. Right. So it adds this desperate urgency to her having to come back and test her grandchildren as well. And then obviously, as far as like their preborn nature goes, this is one way to make it a little more palatable. Right. We've discussed in the past how we're interested in the way Alia will be treated by Villeneuve in part two, because she's like a two-year-old speaking full-ass full sentences <laughs> yeah. and talking philosophy and shit. And that, there's some weirdness on screen there. That's a tough sell, I think, for your average audience member. Agreed. I think fudging yeah. with the timeline here in this miniseries is a smart way to just cast an older James McAvoy, an older Ganema, and allow them to have some of this weird pre-born maturity that these two characters have had since birth, since before birth, technically, 
and to let it be less weird on screen, to let it be more palatable for your average viewer to be like, okay, they're just like really young teenagers, but they are very mature because of their powers and because of who they are. That's either a good decision or bad decision, depending on how you look at it, right? Like yeah. it could be argued that you should lean into their preborn weirdness. It's part of who they are and part of how characters interact with them. Or there's the argument to be made of, well, your average viewer is just going to be so distracted by it <laughs> yeah. that they're going to, you know, it's going to be a hard sell. No one's going to buy that pitch. Just ease off on the weirdness a little bit. I can see both sides of that argument, but I think the way the miniseries handles it here is done well. Yeah, I could see it being taken further. Like I almost wanted the slightly older kids to be slightly more powerful than they are in the books and they almost yeah. feel less powerful at which point mm, we just mm -hmm. have like james mcavoy and jessica brooks being like like smarter than average 17 year olds but still just like 17 year olds yeah and it's like yeah. are they superhumans are they like so strange so i agree though i think broadly and also because there's conversations about like ganima wedding Faradin at the end and being yeah. like yo we're gonna have to have kids like that's awkward if she's nine Right. Conversations right. about like from I think it was Jessica was considering from the Bidding Jesuit she had had orders to consider breeding them, having Leto and Ganima sleep together, which again, nine year olds, fucking twisted and weird. Like right. if they're closer to eighteen, it just makes it all way more palatable for the average audience member. And that's not the point. Like when you're reading the book, I didn't get distracted or caught up on those things. I was like, yeah, it's fucked up and weird because most of this book is fucked up and weird. But I think watching the miniseries. It's a, it's a different experience. Totally. To see a child, a literal child on screen yeah. say those things, I think <laughs> uh, is a different ugh. visceral experience. <laughs> just pictured it for a second, like a nine-year-old talking to Faradin, being <laughs> like, we're going to have babies. It's like, Ugh, yeah god yeah no. <laughs> yeah i definitely find myself leaning more toward aging them up totally. is yeah. the right choice and we'll see how vilnov handles ollie in part two the last thing i'll say about my point here about fudging the timeline right i like that it gives alia a chance to be in power longer right yeah because she's ruling the empire for around nine years in the book which is frankly a long time sure right that's that's multiple terms. And here in the miniseries, she gets more than that. You know, she gets like 16, 17 years of rule here as the twins grow and become of age. I think for me, it's a little more believable that some of the drastic changes that happen between Messiah and Children of Dune in the empire, within the culture, within the religion of Muad'Dib, it makes more sense to me that that happens slowly over 15, 16 years right. versus eight, nine years. And I think in particular, we basically are on the brink of civil war <laughs> Yeah. in Children of Dune. You know, right, by the end right. of Children of Dune, like war is going to break out any day now. And same idea there. It's a little easier for me to believe that civil war and revolution happens over an extended period of time, over many grievances, rather than maybe just like eight or nine years, which, you know, a revolution could happen in that amount of time. I don't think it's unbelievable, but it's just more believable for me to be like, oh yeah, 15 years ago, the seeds of this civil war, the seeds of this revolution totally. were planted yeah, yeah. and we're seeing them sprout now finally. Yeah. Great point. I will say admittedly, the, 
I did have a thought watching where I was like, these kids are clearly like 16, 17 years old. Gertie, Stilgar, Jessica, like none of them look 16, yeah. 17 years older than they were in the True. first, in part one in the Messiah episodes. Yeah. But you know what? I'm going to chalk that up to Spice Melange, extended lifespans. All of these people are nobility and have access to a healthy spice diet and they live much longer than your average person. And they, uh, you know what? They're probably looking great in their 40s and 50s. So what's 16 years between <laughs> between friends, you know? The only weird one is like Alia is a little strange because literally, although she is, I think probably of the, she, she is at the age where she's not going to be changing dramatically over like 10, 15 years. Yeah. She was called literally a child by hate. Hate was like, blah, 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 child. And I'm like, so she, he sees her as a child. Like visually is, is this no, no, she looks the same. Interesting. So I, I get a little caught up on, on Alia and I got distracted. Yeah. By some characters being <laughs> whole ass adults now and some being still the same, but yeah, whatever. It happens. Yeah. When you fudge the timeline, a little bit of that is going to happen, but I don't think it was so unbelievable for me that it took me out of it. Oh shit. Wait, I just thought of the explanation. Remember hmm. Jessica coming back to Arrakis took note of the fact that Alia wasn't aging as fast as she should have. Yeah. Because oh yeah, that's control. Alia doing the Benny Jesuit metabolism yeah. thing. Oh, yeah. There's shit. there's a in canon reason for why Alia would look the same after 16 years, and that's because she's, like she's keeping that 17 year old, yeah. 18 year old glow. She's like, I just want to look this way forever. Well, yeah. Mm -hmm. Pretty good. Mm -hmm. Good job, John Harrison. <laughs> 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 you did it. The Madman did it. He did it. Well, we've shared the things that we like about this adaptation, some of the things. There were other things. We're not going to talk about them. You just have to guess. We're going to talk now about two things that we disliked, two picks for things that we wish were done differently or that we think could have been done a little better. Before we do, we're going to take a quick break. So stick around. When we're back, we're getting into the negative Nancy territory of picking this thing we love apart. We'll be right back. Welcome back, folks. Let's now get into the two things, Leo, that you and I disliked mm. about part two yeah. of Sci-Fi's Children of Dune. And I will toss it to you first. Sure. What were your qualms with this episode? My qualms. Okay. Well, first, I've got just kind of another lightning round grab bag of complaints. Mm. <laughs> you love these. You know, I, again, why choose one when I can choose 12? And I'll try to be as quick as possible. But basically, broadly, there are some character choices I just didn't dig. I didn't vibe with. Uh, mm. And a few of them were simplified in ways that I think legitimately just made them worse characters. And in a way that I didn't think they had to be to keep the show going. So let's get through them. First up, the twins. We just talked about them being aged up. That's fine. But... Considering they are much older than nine, I would expect them from the book standpoint to have much more control over their powers and their surroundings. And in this, they just seem like sassy, sarcastic kids with only a few yeah. examples of like Ganema knowing that Jessica's reciting the litany of fear. Cool. We don't really get an explanation of that. And when they say, you've never been far from us, grandmother, it's again, little moments that I hoped they would say, we've got this mastery of this power and there's just nothing. So it felt like they were very nerfed in a significant way. Mm. I also 
in the book, they kind of mentatted their way to knowing that they're being hunted by laws of tigers. They were like, we know that it's probably going to be a large animal. It's probably going to be big enough that it can't fit into this thing. We don't know what it's going to be, but based on like what we can figure out, we deduced that this is the case. In this, they were like, what's that I hear? On yonder, roar! <laughs> roar I'm a laser tiger. Roar! They're great. They're great. <laughs> They're like, ah, <laughs> oh, yes, Tony and Tina the tigers. <laughs> and also, they just saw them by chance in Arkane. They were like, oh, is that a fucking laser? Is that Tony the tiger? And he's oh, in the cage. right in the cage. They're I forgot great. about that. Yeah. <laughs> and he's yeah. like, wow, that's Tony the tiger. So I'll wrap up my complaint that at least base because as you said earlier, we haven't seen episode three. Right now, it seems like her getting stuck in the cave and then him having to turn and face them was not part of the plan. I do yeah. not like the twins being this caught off guard by a couple of fucking tigers. It's a dumb yeah. plot that shouldn't work. Yes. And mm -hmm. the fact that it seems to have worked, quote unquote, is dumb, is stupid. I don't like it. I don't like that that even got close to working. I like them being like, we're going to be in the cave. He poisons, he kills both of them very handily. And then she sees his dead body as the part of the compulsion that she puts on herself. It's possible that we are seeing Ganima's rewritten memories. That would change all of my complaint about this scene. But I don't know. Broadly, I just want more respect on the names of Leto and Ganima. Okay. Duncan Idaho. Ooh. <laughs> so Duncan Idaho. I am still bummed that he is just a mentat and not a Sensuni philosopher because yeah. hate is so easy to relegate to this boring mentat role of I am a computer. I am processing data. It's like, <laughs> yeah, boring, duh, whatever. The Zensuni part's the spicy part where he's like, mm -hmm. what does one hand do without the body? And Paul's like, what the fuck are you talking about? It was great. <laughs> I love the Zensuni sections and we just don't have that at all. And in the book, he falls as Duncan Idaho. As he watches Alia slip into abomination, he uses Mentat calculations and computation as a means of escape from his torment, from his actual subjective torture of watching his wife dissolve, right? He's like, yeah. I'm going to retreat to Data because Data's cold and it's comforting to not be thinking about things. I have this Mentat removal from immediacy. Right. right. So having it always on where he's just like stiffly walking around in this and she's like, why are you staring at me? And he's like, I'm gathering data like it felt off. It didn't feel as like alive and vibrant as Duncan Idaho should feel. And to that end, they really leaned into him as the sort of like jealous cuckold husband as yeah. he sees her sleeping with Javid and then is like has this anguished moment. But the anguish in the book is I don't think is ever about like a jealous lover. It's not about, no. oh, she's having sex with other men. It's about the woman I love is being torn apart by this inner presence. And it's right. awful. Right. And the added layer there is the woman I loved would not have slept with other men. It is yeah. because of the Baron's influence that yes. this thing is happening. So yes. it's less the cuckolding that he has issue with, it's more that he has lost the woman he loved. She is acting completely unlike herself. This is no longer Alia Atreides. 10,000%. And I even, I pulled a quote, quote, Alia whirled away from him as he'd known she would. 
It helped him that he did not have to look at that once beloved face, which was now so twisted by alien possession. End quote. It's the alien possession that is the thesis of what upsets him and breaks his heart yeah. in the book. This is For just sure. like, ugh, she's fucking other men. It's like, oh, I don't know. Right. It, he's not even hot. He's not even hot. He's got thin lips. What the fuck? <laughs> yeah. So no offense to the actor who played Jimmy. <laughs> Sorry, dude. <laughs> You can't get it. I, I, I tell a lot of people they can get it. You can't. I'm sorry. Yeah, I'm sorry, bud. Duncan is a hard thing to get right. Duncan is a hard character to nail. I think that the script took a safe course and made him much easier to read by like romance novel standards. And I don't care for it as an adaptation. I think he's just I weak. I think the actor did a good job with what was chosen for him as his script and his overall direction. No shame or hate to the actor of Duncan Idaho. I just wish he was written differently. Yeah. Moving on. Tykenik. Tykenik, still generic, still boring. I was hoping episode two would get better. He still hasn't. He's still boring. The only moment yep. was the like, when she said, don't tell Faradin. And he's like, what? On his face. I was like, okay, <laughs> a little bit of that, but a lot more of that, please. And then Stilgar. Finally, Stilgar. So this may be a casting thing. I have no real notes for the actor and what he did, but can yeah. you, looking at this withered, skinny little man, believe that he was so capable as a fighter of a siege that he beat out the strongest previous name? No, not even no. fucking remotely. No. He is so withered and small. And <sighs> in this adaptation, he carries himself more like Korba or like one of these like yep. softened, oh, yeah. bureaucratic, shitty, Weasley Fremen. Despite all of the bureaucracy, Stilgar was always Stilgar. And Stilgar was always able to like throw down. He is Javier Bardem. Javier Bardem would never be this guy. And yeah. I maintain that. I just think it was a weird casting choice. It's that's that's kind of where I'm at with Stilgar. Yeah, I agree. And then finally, finally. I have the preacher, but instead of going on about the preacher, I did look ahead. Ooh. I did see your notes, and I think we're on the same page. So in case you miss anything, I'll, I'll jump in if you miss anything. But I want to pass off to you because I know the preacher is not your favorite part of this adaptation. No, not at all. The preacher was perhaps the number one thing I disliked <laughs> about this episode. Yeah because I was very excited to see the preacher on screen. One of my favorite characters in Dune. We hype him up all the time. Here, it's such a letdown for me. Like, first of all, there's not enough preacher in this episode. There can never be enough preacher, frankly. <laughs> yeah. But in this episode, not enough preacher. Agreed. Maybe there's more to come in part three. Haven't watched part three yet. That aside, though, I have major issues with the way he's portrayed in the miniseries. Totally. We joked about this earlier, but to be clear, that's Alec Newman. That's Wadeep. <laughs> that's Alec Paul Atreides. Yeah. There's no question. Yeah. Okay, wait. Hold up. Paul Atreides didn't have chapped lips. I mean, it couldn't be. That's a fair point. Yeah. Oh, and Paul Atreides was always like, I'm Paul Atreides. He wasn't like, Wadeep is dead. So, couldn't mm. be. <laughs> mm. Couldn't be. Couldn't be. Couldn't be. <laughs> Maybe. Yeah. Much like Clark Kent. Oh, sure. He puts on some nerdy glasses and then no one knows. It's it really, it's worse than that because <laughs> it's just his lips dried out and people are like, I don't recognize. It's worse than that. Yeah. He just doesn't, 
use chapstick. Doesn't even bother with the nerdy glasses. Yeah, it's a tough look. I, I think the creative choice to basically leave this as Alec Newman, very obviously on screen, put zero effort into even trying to obscure that fact for the viewer was awful. It, yeah. it was lazy and it was bad. It's just obvious from the very first shot. You're like, oh, he's back. Alec Newman, Paul Atreides. <laughs> there <1D>. he is. <laughs> yeah. And it's a damn shame because the Paul equals preacher reveal later in children of dune right. is maybe like a top three twist in the whole dune saga and i presume we're not going to get that in part three like he's going to walk up to leto and be like i'm paul atreides and he's gonna be like yeah i know we all knew we all knew from the very <laughs> first scene you were in it's extremely lazy i wasn't a fan of it the portrayal's bad it's even more awkward that right after we meet the preacher, all the characters are having a walk and talk where they're like, who could that be? Who possibly? And <laughs> I, as the viewer, I'm like, it's we Paul all Trades. fucking saw who that was. Paul Atreides, look at him. It's literally Paul Atreides. It's Paul fucking Atreides. It's so obvious. And I think the fix feels easy to me. Like, just yeah. have him pull the hood down further so it obscures most of his face. Just show us the chapped lips. If you're really all about those chapped lips. And then have him wear like a still suit mask, which he does in the book many times as well, that obscures his voice yeah. and changes his voice and covers even more of his face. We could have very easily done that in this miniseries and hidden the fact that this is Alec Newman, hidden the fact that this is Paul Monty. Dude, totally agreed. If you imagine like a somewhat opaque black mask covering him from like bridge of the nose down right and then his and then the hood tarred eyes even if he had his hood back and like had his hair alec newman is like a pretty distinct looking guy but even so covering that much of his face i would also be like yeah could be it right. really could be him but he's been dead for 12 years we haven't seen is it him i don't know right and then when he Maybe he takes his mask down and leans into Ali and goes, stop trying to pull me into the spotlight, sister. It would be like, Wah! you know, what the yeah, that's like a what the fuck moment. So totally agreed. Like they could have given him some opaque mask. We see masks later that are not opaque. But again, it's a deep desert mask. We have all of the excuses in the book and you just spent all this money on CG Laza Tigers. <laughs> like get a fucking mask. Yeah. Agreed. <laughs> yeah. It's tough. Maybe the Laza Tigers took up the whole budget, but I feel like a longer cloak and a face mask costs like $10. Yeah. It's a tough look. I wasn't a fan. I, in fact, think it actively harmed the story of this miniseries. Agreed. It looks cheap. The other note I had about The Preacher yeah. is actually Alec Newman's portrayal. I think he went very stoic, and I think he went very angry, both of which are good words to describe the preacher. That's certainly a part of his character. But I think in the books, he is much more theatrical. He is riling up that crowd. He is given a rousing ass speech, folks. Right. Like people in the market drop dead silent Yeah, and turn and listen when this man speaks. I appreciated that we got that moment. We got him speaking to a market crowd. There was a nice extended scene where he's giving a speech but Alec Newman's delivery of that speech, his portrayal of the preacher did not stir the emotions in me that the literal words, the black and white words on a page yeah. in a book did. True. 
And I think that's a damn shame. I think there's a way to make the preacher such a compelling character and for the viewer to be just as riled up as the crowd is when we hear him speak. And I just didn't get that in this miniseries from Alec Newman's portrayal, which is a damn shame. Yeah, he kind of played it closer to how Paul Atreides was in Messiah, but he yeah. needed to go like full like Baptist minister who's yeah. like riling up the audience with theatrics, right? And with just a musicality to his voice that whips people into a frenzy because that's what he does in the book, word for yeah. word. And I think he needs to go cult leader, like loud, yeah. Oh, yeah. manipulative cult leader over Paul Atreides, who is now tired and old. Yeah. So that might be a directorial thing. Like, I don't know if maybe they maybe they put it in Alex's hands. I don't know. I struggle yeah. sometimes to draw those lines. But whatever, whoever yeah. decided, I think made, to your point, a wrong choice. Totally. Okay, so what was item number two on your list of dislikes for this episode? Yeah, okay. Jessica's too nice. Jessica mm. is too sweet and nice. I don't trust her fully, but this episode didn't give me a lot of reason to not trust her. Like, I liked her way too much. More than I should for who she is in the story. I am genuinely not sure how this change of making Jessica a lot more amicable I'm genuinely not sure how this affects the overall like tapestry that is Children of Dune. It maybe it's better in the long run. I'll have to kind of reserve ultimate judgment until the end of episode three. Yeah. But it distracted me the entire time and it caught me off guard. Like in the book, the twins are very on guard around their weird analytical Benny Jesuit grandmother. Alia is outright hostile. Jessica was on planet for five seconds before she had multiple men executed and was like, yo, who didn't fucking bow fast? And get them, kill them, kill those men. And that's Jessica in the book. She's like here to like lay the law down. I am Muad'Dib's mother. Yeah. And like that sets up the fact that she kidnaps and then hyper drugs a nine-year-old into a coma. She is not a good person. So for her to be like grandchildren, I just, I wish that we could have had more time together all these years. And they're like, yeah, okay, sure. And she's like, okay, bye. I was like, who the fuck is this character? Yeah. <laughs> like, this is so not Jessica. I don't know. Yeah. It also makes it harder to believe why everyone is so suspicious. <laughs> yeah. Because it's like, yeah, I mean, this is the nice old grandma just coming back to visit. Why is everyone on edge? She's lovely. Welcome back, Jessica. Yeah, no, people would drop their guards real quick. They don't, thank goodness, but still, you're 100% right. I'll also say, I understood, and this might be just my interpretation of Children of Dune, and if you out there in listener land disagree, that's fine. But I saw, and this might just be my understanding of it, her keeping everybody at arm's distance, refusing to become too familiar or too nice with anybody, not that she explicitly does that, but I see that as a response to the trauma of being on Arrakis. Like the first scene we see her, she's like, fuck this planet. It took the love of my life. It took my son. My daughter is slipping into abomination and is ruining the empire. Like there are so many reasons for her to hate this planet and now she's back. And she's back on Bene Gesserit orders. But that doesn't mean that she's like there to make friends. So I always understood her being cold and kind of an asshole to everybody as being very directly tied to the trauma of the very real person that is Jessica of House Atreides. Like, I see that as fully defensible. 
And I also see that as really moving. Like the fact that she is so cold and distant because she can't bear to get close to people again, knowing that the Bene Gesserit might rip them away or knowing that they may be killed by some assassination plot or whatever. Like she is very careful. And I respect that. And I almost, I don't know, prefer that to her like sweeping in to this planet that took so much from her and being like, grandchildren oh yay and like she hugs them and it's just <laughs> i don't know it makes so much more sense to have her kind of cold and distant as this woman marked by trauma than she is in this adaptation i mean specifically in this adaptation we see her greeting everybody with warm hugs even alia very different and even putting on a nice face for leto too during their interview giving him tea she's being nice to him he is the one she is most worried about being actively abomination i don't super understand the directional choices there and this might just be formed a lot by my bias toward the book because i do mm -hmm. love this story that i've gotten so familiar with but i'm not yet sold on why it was a good choice to make this change like i'm not yet sold that oh yeah, John Harrison made this change because of X, Y, and Z. I don't see those reasons yet. And this just might be, again, my interpretation of her in the book. But at the end of episode three, if we haven't gotten some kind of pivot from her, I think I would say this is a weaker character than Jessica of House Atreides and someone who falls a lot more in line with some like classic archetypes, which are we doing that? Are we doing that in Dune? <laughs> are we doing that yeah. boring choices in Dune? I, don't I couldn't agree more. I think you're absolutely right that Jessica was far too nice in this series and all the points you've made are so spot on. This thought didn't really come to me while watching the episode, but in hindsight, and while we were scripting our conversation today, it started to creep in. Yeah. And especially after seeing your notes and the points that you made, and now after hearing you make them, yeah, I see it. I see the problem with the way Jessica was portrayed in this almost as that loving grandmother back to see her grandchildren and not yeah. the potentially sneaky Benny Gesserit back to breed her grandchildren or to <laughs> yeah. kill her daughter yeah. because she's abomination. You know, like Jessica is potentially here to do some heinous shit. Yeah. That would feel out of left field with this like nice grandmother. <laughs> yes, exactly. That's such a great point. I'm glad you brought that up. So that was my second pick. What about you? What is your second thing that you don't super love about this adaptation? So the other thing I didn't like about this adaptation were the cast out. Mm. And I don't want to go too hard on this point. Jack <laughs> I don't want to go too hard on this point, though, because there sure. is still a third episode left to watch. Right. Maybe the cast out are portrayed differently or have more nuance to them in part three. I don't know. I haven't watched it yet. But here in part two, they kind of just look like generic bumbling villains coming up with an yeah. evil scheme because that's what generic bumbling villains do. And it was hard for me to believe that the cast out or this mythical Jakarutu or these Fremen who are wanting to go back to the old ways, to the desert ways, are a real threat to anyone. And in the book, I think it's 
pretty clear early on that they're a real threat because we get that very critical scene of Hassan Tariq murdering, outright murdering pilgrims in the desert. I think that creates yeah. weight. Just killing off-worlders. <laughs> Just killing off-worlders. A quick side note here. Another very small issue I had with the scene of them scheming is that they're shit-talking Paul. They're shit-talking the preacher. <laughs> yeah. And yeah. then the camera cuts and like moves not even five feet away. <laughs> He's just sitting there listening. Okay. Okay. I did think, what if this is a visual representation of what he's seeing when he's not there? Mm, okay. I don't think that's true. I think they fucked it up. I don't know that the camera <laughs> yeah. sold me on that. I don't know that the camera shot sold me on that. I, I just, in my notes, I was like, either this is really fucking funny that they were like, what do we do with that old idiot over there? And the old idiot's like, what? that's so rude. Yeah, so damn rude. <laughs> Guys. Jesus, I'm right here. I don't have to keep... Fuck. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Tough look in that scene. But I think back to my original point about them coming off as kind of foolish. They don't have weight. And I think the scene where Maurice and Hassan Tariq murder the pilgrims was desperately yeah. needed in this episode to add weight to who the cast out are and to add weight to their presence as a danger within this empire to alia to the atreides to the fremen who are following the atreides and giving up their desert ways as they're presented they just simply are not a threat and it's honestly kind of silly and again i will reserve judgment on this until part three but here in part two we learn basically nothing about them or their philosophy or why they are breaking ties with the Atreides outside of a couple lines of dialogue about the ecological transformation that they take issue with. And obviously the worms dying that they take issue with that comes up later in the throne room scene with Ali and her mother. Right, right. I think that is definitely a part, right? That's a part of their philosophy of why they're breaking away. But the more interesting part to me is that their philosophy is so much more nuanced. Like their religious beliefs in Muad'Dib are so rock solid and set in stone. And they think Alia is corrupting that. Like there's a schism forming within the religion of Muad'Dib. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Between these Fremen who believe yeah. in the old Muad'Dib of the desert, who helped them take down the Harkonnens all those years ago, and this new religion twisted by Alia Atreides and twisted by folks like Korba in Dune Messiah. That's really interesting. And that shows to me the effect Paul had on these people, that schisms are forming within that belief system and that there are people that are not like, we must go back to a time before Paul Muad'Dib's influence. No, he is still their Messiah. He is still their God. They want to go back to a time that probably didn't exist. You know, it's just a fantasy in their minds, but back to a time where it was just Paul Muad'Dib and it was just his religion and not this abomination of a religion that Ali Atreides, his sister, is perpetrating. Yeah, I see what you did there. Uh, so again, <laughs> that's a lot of nuance. It took me like five fucking minutes to even explain that idea. I understand why it was distilled down to the cast out we see in this episode, but I think it's such an important part, and hopefully we get some of that in part three 
in the third episode. Maybe we get a bit more interactions with the cast out. And once we get to Jakarutu, maybe we see some of their philosophy. But I doubt it's going to get as sort of convoluted and deep as it does in the book. And that's my favorite part about the cast out is this like interesting philosophy and what it says about Paul's influence and what it says about this schism forming within the Fremen as a culture, but within their religion as well. So that's where I'll basically wrap up my point. In general, I think the Fremen experience in this miniseries is kind of overshadowed by the story taking place with all right. the Atreides characters in the palace. I think Stilgar is another example where we don't get much of his inner turmoil, and that's such a central part oh, of the book. I was just I was just thinking about the, yep. the Fremen women are more beautiful this year or whatever. Like yeah. that we just don't have that. We don't. And it was such a moment of an old Fremen who is part of that traditional solid Fremen culture, beautiful, respectable, realizing bureaucracy and realizing yeah. the shift toward this dangerous new, like soft. It's like so good. And it's so, it also demonstrated how fucking unbelievably powerful Leto 2 is yep. in his understanding of people. It's something that I think that actually probably would have scratched both of our itches mm -hmm. in a sense. Yeah. Like giving more weight to the Fremen experience and also giving more power to the, the twins. Totally. And to be fair, it's sort of hinted at because Leto and Stilgar have that conversation in this episode. And he says like, yeah. oh, this is the bureaucratic Stilgar. What happened to the old Stilgar? Of the, the government Stilgar. The government yeah. Stilgar versus yeah. the old Stilgar of the desert. They kind of hint at that, but it's yeah. distilled down to its like most <laughs> simplest form. And we lose some of the nuance and we definitely lose that inner turmoil within Stilgar where he himself is questioning, wait a second, do these cast out have a point? Is Alia right. poisoning what Muad'Dib built? You know, like Stilgar is a microcosm for the entire Fremen experience from Dune Messiah into Children of Dune. And it's a shame that it's sort of distilled down into a very simple conversation between Leto and Stilgar. So that was the second thing for me, is that I wish we had gotten a bit more nuance of the Fremen experience through Stilgar, but also a bit more nuance of who the cast out are and an exploration of their beliefs. And we didn't really get that. That's a good point. I don't ever really think about the cast out in Jakarudu as representative of, because they're always painted as like extremists, yeah. having populated one very small portion of the Fremen psyche. But... It is also true that they are still a very honest and earnest reaction to the Atreides takeover and one that is desperately missing from this adaptation because they are kind of like just cronies. They're just like, we're plotting in this Jackarudu. Right. And then right. like, that's it. So you're right. I think they're very simplified. And it's a pain that like such Fremen characters are simplified because I feel like John Harrison tried by like starting last episode with Farouk mm -hmm. and his son to like, let's look at the Fremen experience here. But this is the dropped ball in that arena. I agree. Totally. Well, okay. Dang. We've brought the mood down. We have. We've, <laughs> we've taken a minute to just say, this is the worst episode of any television series we've ever seen. <laughs> so let's pivot. Let's lighten things back up again. Let's talk about our favorite scenes. Yeah. Just our favorite takeaway scenes from the show. And 
Abu, start us off. What was your favorite scene from this episode of the miniseries? So this is very quick because I've already sort of said my piece on this. So I'll try not to repeat myself, but the Ornithopter ride that opened up part two with Irulan and the twins was just so good. It was a fun, dynamic scene where we got to see the worms, which yep. don't have much of a presence in this episode. We got yeah, to see Leto's three of, <laughs> three of them. It was incredible. Worm time. <laughs> we also yeah. got to see Leto's piloting skills, and True. we get some of that cute banter between the twins and Irulan that tells us about <laughs> their relationship and gives us some fun story exposition. Some of that exposition that's packed into this opening scene is actually really important stuff about Leto yep. and Ganema's preborn nature. There's a line. You just knew that without having being taught it. They right? just knew no. how to fly without having being taught. And I loved that because, yeah. as we know, Leto's grandfather, Duke Leto Atreides, the man he's named for, wanted to be a pilot. Wanted to be a pilot. He was a great <laughs> pilot. He was an iconic oh. pilot. Gosh. And here is yeah. Leto just inheriting his grandfather's abilities in the most literal preborn sense. So little lines like that, the exposition with Irulan, and just the fact that it's a fun scene. They almost get chomped yeah. on by a worm, you know? And it, That's so fucking crazy to me. It was so Because I was like, oh, yeah, worm time. Registered trademark. Yeah. What an exciting little meeting of the worms. Right. And then <laughs> it's like, oh, but one of them's like, wait, what are we doing? Let's eat, Let's eat these this guys. Thing. Yeah. <laughs> and then they are in his mouth. And yeah. Leto's like, not yet. <laughs> yeah oh my god the no. way it was edited and cut i was like you're waiting too long leto buddy jet boost out and of there they dude. died credits <laughs> right right so there for all of those reasons ornithopter scene that opens the episode so good and i loved it and it's my favorite scene excellent wonderful pick what about you i loved jessica and alia receiving the supplicants mm. in the throne room and i want to highlight i watched that scene and I was taking notes the whole time. And I was like, oh, beautiful throne. Oh my God, beautiful, beautiful wall. What the fuck? Beautiful. The whole room is beautiful. Beautiful. The yeah. set in this scene is so unapologetically beautiful. Yeah. And it was so much fun to watch. Do I think it was an accurate adaptation of the scene? Mm, no. Yeah. <laughs> no. Mm. They changed quite a bit. But for starting and ending at the same like place as the book more or less the nabe who runs to her back the fadakin and she's like you who have been scorched by the sun do you know to stand back to back and he's like fuck yeah i do jessica let's go mm -hmm. i do think that this was one of the more dramatically changed scenes but also one that i very much enjoyed watching and i came away from it with that glow of like oh that was good and beyond the like gorgeous set and beyond all of the regal feelings that the keep is supposed to instill within us. Yeah. She has that whole little speech. Jessica has that whole little, you may be worried that I'm here as a Bene Gesserit. I'm here as a Fremen because I am Fremen. I will always be Fremen. And it's a moving, if not deeply manipulative speech. <laughs> mm -hmm. But I did find myself like, wow, that's a great speech. And it's not like explicitly said in the book. But we see her in her adherence to Fremen rule, right? The Nabe comes forward and says, I lied about my name. That's true. But I'm here to discuss a matter of the desert. And 
Jessica's like, shut all of your complaints down. This is important. So she's showing to people, I know the old ways. And even at the end, she escapes with five <laughs> Fidekin, yeah. like five Fremen Fidekin. She demonstrates that she is still in connection with the Fremen way. But to make it explicit makes it a lot easier for, I think, viewers. And I think also just simplifies the scene. And it's not a bad thing overall. I also just think that speech is well delivered. Like that little, I am a Fremen. She's among them. She turns to look at Alia, who's then separate from them. She's saying to them implicitly, I'm not on her team. This oppressor, this repressor. I am with you, the people. I am among you. I am a Fremen. Just beautiful. Liked that overall. And then I was kind of bummed that she's not like on the chair and dodging to the left right as she gets shot at. Yeah. I mean, she dodges. It's weird. She does a thing. I love the dodge. <laughs> so bad. I loved it so much when she's like looking at Alia and then like to the side and then <laughs> the, the bullet. I was like, I didn't expect it because I was just like, oh, they're going to do it a different way because she's not on the throne. I thought it was so goofy and so fucking cool. I was into it. It was great. And I miss elements of the original, of course. I miss Jessica, like, shutting her daughter down and being like, let everyone in here know. And then there's also that whole thing where she said, that man survives or you two die. Go help him. Yeah. Yeah, there's a couple of crucial lines missing. I mean, her calling totally. out Alia as the Baron in front of yeah. everyone yes. is like a crucial well, line that's missing. She calls her out explicitly because I reread the chapter. She's like, you tried to kill me. And then when she sees the fidgeting of the fingers, she goes, so you've had your revenge. And she doesn't exactly tell everyone, hey, this is Baron Harkonnen. This is Abomination. But she's like, this girl just tried to kill the mother of Muad'Dib. Mm and let no one in this room be mistaken about that. And then she realizes when Baron as Alia lapses into deep Chakopsa, she's like, I got to get the fuck out of mm, here. So gotcha. that's when she goes to the uh, Okay, okay. I'm misremembering some of the internal dialogue and some of the things she says out loud. But you're totally right. It is the moment that Jessica's like, oh, that's Baron Harkonnen. Right, is, right. It has taken my daughter. And it's also the moment that she, to the populace, is like, my daughter is possessed and just tried to kill me. Right. Yeah, and we're, like, we're missing some that's of that. such a fucking wild moment. But also to the point of like, Jessica's not that woman in this adaptation. She's like a nice grandma. Right, right. She's like, oh, my daughter, like hug. No, like, I don't know. It's it's very, this was my favorite scene though, because beyond any of this like petty analysis, any of this like, oh, what do the words mean? Who are the characters? I just fucking enjoyed watching this yeah. scene. I just like super enjoyed it. And I also will say, I miss the fucking guy, Troubadour. The Troubadour, uh, Tagir Mohandas. He's there for a second. They're like, Troubadour. And I was like, oh, Tagir. And then they yeah. <laughs> didn't do yeah, We don't get his thing. diss track on Alia or anything. The cone teen. The cone Like fucking teen. burn. I wanted it. It's fine. I'm not complaining about my favorite scene. I loved it. I thought it was great. And to be clear, there's a few scenes that I really could have probably convinced myself were my favorite. The tiger scene was a lot of fun. The walking room to room was great. And for showing the sets and making me feel like I was on Arrakis. Even Jessica and Duncan in their final scene together when they're like flying the ornithopter. And she's like, I made mistakes. And he's like, none of the mistakes you made, I didn't repeat. Like, 
oh heartbreaking love it i just love the episode overall and any of my complaints are just could have been better and i want it to be as good as possible yeah no it was a great episode overall like i think taking into account everything we've talked about today at the end of the day once again i think this was an excellent adaptation and the best version of children of dune we've ever gotten <laughs> baby <laughs> unequivocally unequivocally i also i don't want to say it but maybe the best we'll ever get because like we may get it at some point but this really does demonstrate that john harrison cares so deeply yeah. about the source material and even the changes he's made most of the time i'm like yeah i get it you know even like the the cast outs i want them to be accurate to their characters in the books but like yeah it's a sprawling story and if you're going yeah. to cut stuff, what do you cut? Do you make right. Tychonic more generic so that we don't spend more time wondering what Tychonic cares about everything? Yeah, I guess you do. And at the end of the day, do I cry about it? A little, sure. But it's right. not- Only for a couple hours on a podcast. Only for a few hours. And then broadcasting it to thousands of people. <laughs> but it's fine. I don't know. I, I think that this is a tremendously well done adaptation, even despite our yeah. complaints. For sure. I couldn't agree more. Yeah. And perhaps the best adaptation we'll ever get of Children of Dune. But hey, knock on wood. Maybe, knock on uh, wood. Maybe I hope we get something great. Villeneuve will be in a cabin somewhere in the, in the woods and some yeah. legendary executive will pull up in their Hummer and they'll be like, we need you for one last job. And he's like, children. <laughs> and that's all he says. And they go, yeah, children. <laughs> what? 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 <laughs> I have children? I know I have ch different children. Anyway. Well, that's it. <laughs> that's it for episode two. Next time, on our next episode, we're going to be talking about episode three. So, if you're watching along, right. find it. Watch it. Form opinions. Have your own opinions. Yes. And compare them to ours. And mm -hmm. uh, next episode in particular, I'm excited to look back on the last three episodes, the, la the overall project. And to say at the end, hey, do I think yeah. they did these characters justice or do I just think they cut them from what matters? And hey, if y'all have poignant thoughts, send them to us. We want to hear from you. Podcast at gmail.com. That's we do. the email address. Stop making us say it. <laughs> <laughs> you know it. We know it. Everyone knows it. We all have matching Podcast at gmail.com tattoos. That's a thing we all have. Yeah, maybe not in the same place. Some of us have gotten creative with where to put it, but mm -hmm. we all have it. I did under my lip. So whenever people, I could just. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Whenever somebody asks, how do I get in touch with you? Yeah. I, just go, I do have to raise <laughs> my armpit and oh. get them to read my armpit. Yeah, that's cool. It was a very painful tattoo. I hear that's a really painful place to get tattooed. <laughs> but I was like, this is the best place. This is where I can communicate best. Yeah with listeners and fans on where to email us. That's interesting. Not your other armpit. What's on your other? Do you have something already tattooed in your other armpit? I can't talk about that. <laughs> okay. I, I'll keep asking. I'm going to find out eventually. There will be repercussions if you keep asking. <laughs> <laughs>
Well, friends, there is no real ending. It's just the place where you stop the recording. But this podcast is always one step beyond logic. So help spread the word of Muad'Dib and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. And be sure to check out the other shows on the Lord Party Podcast Network on lordparty.com. You can also follow us on Twitter and Instagram at lore underscore party. Thank you so much for listening. And remember, whoever controls the podcast controls the universe. We'll see you on the golden path.